Jeffrey Clark. And the two and a half million pound man scores. He sees space to run into. And he's got it through and he's gone all the way. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the What The Fork podcast. Today's guest played almost 200 Premier League games and is seen as one of the biggest talents that ever come out of the northeast of England. Welcome to the show, Lee Clark. How are you, mate? You all right? I'm very good, Graham. Thanks. Uh, difficult times for everyone at the moment, but uh, trying to get through that as best we can and, um, you know, just uh, obviously praying and hoping that everyone who has uh, had the virus and is can come through it um, and then just while I'm here I'd be thankful to the fantastic NHS that we have in this country Absolutely, no, 100% echo that. I mean, we'd originally planned to sort of meet up at the at the university or somewhere we could record face-to-face, but I think we kind of gave up the ghost a few weeks ago, didn't we, and thought, yeah. let's just try Zoom or Skype or something over the internet and we'll get there. I mean, how are you coping with it? Um, not too bad. I mean, I've, I've said this on numerous occasions when I've done interviews since we've been in lockdown, Is I see myself as really fortunate. I live out in the countryside, so I've got... Um, you know, there's lots of untouched in terms of not many people around. So I can go out and do my exercise regime, um, you know, for an hour a day. I walk the dog and we don't really come into contact with people. So we're not, you know, you don't feel under any like intense pressure. What what on the other side of the coin, when me and my wife have to go for the essential shopping, we feel a bit of a panic coming on because then you start seeing people and you're thinking, <laughs> are you the right distance apart? And are you, you know, are you breaking any any of the new, the new laws that have come under the legislation since the virus? So it's just it's difficult times for everyone, isn't it? And it's it's unique in business in the world that we're living. But I'm turning my hand, I'm turning myself into dab hand. I'm doing some work around the house, manual work around the house with my oldest son who's in the building trade and my youngest son who's into football. I'm trying to put sessions on for him on an individual basis for him to keep his fitness up. So then obviously myself, uh, you know, keep my own fitness regime. So there's, there's lots to do if you want to do it. I mean, you can easily sit around and do nothing, but I think uh, this far down the line, I think if you'd done that, you'd just be going stir crazy, you know, and we realise that we're in a lucky position. There's obviously other people who don't have the luxury of uh, the the, the area around us or a garden or whatever. I mean, you understand that we're in a really, really lucky position to have that because there'd be people who fall worse positions than me and my family who, as I said, probably live in an apartment four or five floors up, can't really get out, got nowhere really to exercise unless they go out in the public domain and then you have that little bit of panic that, you know, could you be, if you've got the virus, if you, because lots of people I would imagine don't know if they've got it. Yeah. Another passing on, another passing on to other people or the vice versa, or they're catching it from someone they've got. So uncharted territory, but I think that what it's done is brought together the, the nation really and, and everyone, a majority of people are trying to do the right things so we can come out with this as quickly as possible. Going back before viruses were even sort of, I was going to say before they were a thing, before this virus was a thing anyway. Um, am I right in saying you grew up in Walker? I, I was born in Newcastle. I'm born and I was brought up on the banks of the Tyne. My house uh, was a couple of hundred yards from the, the River Tyne. And uh, 
and in, in, in my teenage years, we moved from Walker to, to Walls End and then spent my later teenage years living in Walls End. And so that, that was it. So I've, I've always been an East End lad um, of the city. Um, schooled at St Anthony's Primary in Walker, then Benfield Comprehensive. Um, so yeah, that, and, and obviously played me me football away from school football at, at, at Walls End Boys Club. So yeah, that, that's the part of the world that I was born and bred and proud of. So just for people listening, what we're going to do is try and split in your, your Newcastle time and also your, your Sunderland time as well. And obviously your Newcastle time came first as your boyhood club. Everyone knows that. But obviously growing up in Walker, Walls End Boys Club, what are your earliest memories of growing up and sort of falling in love with football, be it playing or watching? Going back to the first day, um, I was in my primary school and I was still in the infants part of it. I wasn't in the juniors and I was just kicking a ball around in the yard at playtime as you do. And uh, the, the PE teacher um, and football team manager, Mr. Jim Horrocks, was coming across the uh, playground when I was messing around with the ball and he just happened to say, I got your boots with you, son. He says, we've got a school football match tonight and we're short of one or two players. I was only six at the time. The team was an under-11 team and I says, I didn't have them, but I only lived a couple of hundred yards down the bank at Pottery Bank in Walker from the school and I could get to them and get them quickly or if it would get a message to me mum, she would get me boots up to the school, and which happened. And uh, I was... I was one of the substitutes that night for the school team, you know, five years ahead of us. And I got on the pitch and then I used to play every week after that. And and then I quickly developed that. There was a scout, Brian Clark, no relation, who was scouting and managing a Walls End, one of the Walls End Boys Club teams and also a scout for Newcastle. And he asked us to go to the um, Walls End Boys Club training. And they were, once again, their youngest team was under 11. And the, But the rules were different under the Northumberland FA. You had to be, the youngest you could be to play in the under-11s was nine years of age, but I was only six. So I used to go and train with them. And how they got round it, um, they probably, I mean, I don't think they can reprimand them now, 40-odd years later. <laughs> but they used, to, they used to have us down as someone else on the team sheet to get us around, so... Whichever one of the registered lads never turned up on the Sunday, I was them for to get playing in the game because I actually wasn't illegally allowed to play because I was too young. So, but I used to do the training sessions, which the, regi- the regime that you had at Wolves End Boys Club, the structure was unbelievable. So the youngest team under eleven all the way through to under eighteen. So there was a room upstairs where you'd do a physical half an hour, which might entail weights and press ups and sit ups and all this type of thing for half an hour and then you go downstairs and do the ball work for half an hour and as you left the gym the under 12s would come in and then it would go all the way through the night to the under 18s and uh, that gives you a lot of structure a lot of organisation at such a young age and the boys club was brilliant not only because of the type of footballers it brought through and the, the quality of footballers but the way it brought you up about being a person and, and how you behaved and all that you know and I think when you look through the list of people who've been at Walls End Boys Club is a ridiculous list. I mean, Shearer's the kind of probably the go-to one because obviously one of England's top scorers. But you also look down the list and you've got people like Michael Bridges, Beardsley, Carrick. The list well, they've done, they done, they done a T-shirt a while back. They've done a uh-huh. Premier League 11. Um, and it was the likes of Alan and Peter Beardsley were the front two. Myself and Michael Carrick were like the midfield two. And you had like a Robbie Elliott, Alan Thompson, Stevie Watson, Stevie Bruce... Um, you know, it's 
I mean, I can't remember all of them, but there was there was more than just eleven starting players who'd actually yeah. played for the Bulls, who played in the Premier League. And when you name the team, probably would have been a a, a good old team as well. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was. Listen, it was a fantastic period when we weren't training for the the eleven side teams. We used to go and play in the five side leagues that were on there every other mm-hmm. night. So we're in the boys' club itself five nights a week, you know, and then playing for the 11 side team on a Sunday. So it was huge. Who was at that first spot of your talent at the Walls End Boys Club to take you towards Newcastle? Or was there kind of a natural progression with that? Was there someone who always said, look, these are the key four or five players in the team? Yeah, I mean, as I said, the scout for the manager of the team at the time, Brian Clark of the Walls End Boys Club under 11 team, which entailed Ian Bogie, Paul Stevenson, Jeff Wrightson, older lads, but they, they they was that was their team and then um so and but he was also scouting for Newcastle. So when I got to the age I, I started going into the centre of excellence from the age of eleven, which is basically it's at what the academy is now, but it was called a yeah. centre of excellence then. And as you said, my age group and then the year above was Steve Howie and the year below was Alan Thompson, Steve Watson, Robbie Elliott. And so we all used to train together and it was good because we we came through the teams together, the youth teams and the we didn't spend a lot of time in the reserves anyway to be up to uh, such yeah. a long time. We played a handful of games and then we got into the first team. So our careers mirrored each other really in terms of uh, what we'd done and the time scale and what we how we achieved it. So it was good because we had a good group and we had, a, we had a real successful youth team at that stage as well. How much does that help with like chemistry when you get to the first team when you've come through like a lot of different youth teams together with like teammates who've come to the first team with you from, say, the under-18s. Does that give you a good chemistry going into the first team? It did. We had very, we were very competitive against each other. Um, we pushed each other in training. We pushed each other in the matches. Uh, you know, when someone achieves something, if there's someone in the group hadn't done that yet, they quickly wanted to aspire to that. So I think we drove each other on. But we had a great uh, relationship with each other away from the football pitch. Um, you know, we looked after one another. Uh, we from that, we we were good pals. Uh, but we'd grown up together, and we came from an era where, when it came to the football side of it, and we took this into my professional side when we got in first team level, we weren't frightened to fall out with each other in terms of to try and get the right result as players. But as soon as that was finished, we become best mates again. All of us, you know, there was a group of us. You think we came through as apprentices, and um, you know we had we had good times where we're in at seven o'clock in the morning, cleaning boots and preparing what what the professionals' kit. So we had great camaraderie with each other. We used to, you know, we spent like twelve hours a day with each other when we were apprentices and all that. So we spent more time with each other than we did with family. So we had a we had a great relationship, but but we, but also we were driven individuals. And as I said, we drove each other on. I think when someone, as I said, someone achieves something better than what anyone else had achieved, it drove the rest of the group on to try and get to that level as quickly as possible. When you were coming through the, the youth team, was the likes of Waddle and Gaza, and were they like in the first team at that point? <clears throat> no, Chris had gone later, later years as schoolboy. It was Peter was just, just on the verge of leaving for Liverpool at the first yeah. time. Peter Gaza was still about. Gaza was the the big thing. So Gaza, you know, took a lot of time and, and, and us lads showed a lot of 
uh, he would finish training with the first team, then run across to a couple of pitches, the training ground, and come and join in with us. So he had that chemistry. He'd come back sometimes on night sessions when we trained after school and drop in train with the sessions there. He had a you know love of the game, and uh, so we got to know him. And obviously, he was the the big thing at the time, and uh, so he 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 played a, a big part in what we were trying to achieve because we'd seen what he was doing, and he was the. He was the most high-profile player at the, at the time, you know, because he was he was making a big impression both on the national stage and international stage. Yeah, absolutely, especially at that point. Obviously, the, probably the best player at the World Cup in 1990 around that time, wasn't he? Absolutely, um, without a doubt. Obviously, I think you came through under Jim Smith. Now, I spoke to a few people who played under Jim Smith, and I always say, "Well, what was he like?" And the first word I always get is "fucking frightening." Um, <laughs> like, <laughs> what was he like in your experience? Fucking frightening. <laughs> but the, the thing was that um, he was good for the young players, even though he was ruthless. Um, I'll always be in debt room. He gave us my debut at 17. Um, I was playing in midfield alongside Roy Aiken, who was captain yeah. of Scotland at the time. Scottish captain, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah played a lot of lot of games, a record appearance holder for Celtic. Um and when when Jim went off on one, he was he, he he directed his rage more at Roy than he would at me. I think he he seen on me as the young pup, and he didn't want to destroy me confidence too much. Yeah. But I was still terrified of him. We had lots of good senior players at that time: Roy Aiken, Kevin Dillon, Ray Ranson, John Burridge, Mark McGee, Mickey Quinn, um, to name but a few. You know, and uh, they, they they were always at loggerheads with Jim, but. They, they were great for us youngsters coming into the group at that stage I think it was me and Steve Watson and Steve how we were the three that got first team debuts through Jim and were part of that group but it was terrifying I've got to say yeah he, <laughs> I think I think it was Danny Higginbotham that I interviewed and I think he would have played under him about nine or ten years later and pretty much exactly the same so he didn't change um, after he left Newcastle well, well, what I said, what I said, I bumped into Jim a few years later. Jim was commentating on a Newcastle game for television. I think we were playing Portsmouth, two of his old clubs, and I bumped into him in the airport after the game. I was flying to meet up with England under twenty ones, and I was a lot more experienced then. And I'd said to Jim that, you know, as I said, I had massive respect for him for what he'd done, giving us my debut, and that I would have more experience, being a more experienced player, being more mature. I would, I would love to have played under him later on and in fact just before I signed for Sunderland I went to speak to him when he was Derby County manager to sign for him at Derby in the Premier yeah. League and, and but obviously I didn't I went to Sunderland but the Jim Smith that frightened is when I was 17, 18 it would have been a different uh, different different relationship because I was more experienced then and more mature and I would have understood the reasons for him doing it and would have been able to handle that because it was he never held a grudge he never you know, as soon as the game was over, that was it finished. He just cracked on. Ozzy Ardiles came in not long after that. And I think people kind of almost forget about that because of how successful Keegan was. Unfortunately for me, being a Sunderland fan. But um, what was Ozzy Ardiles like? Was he, because I've, I've heard he was quite a, a lovely bloke considering everything he achieved. He was a fantastic man and he was massive in developing us even further. Um Because he gave all of us our heads. We used to play every every single week. There was eight or nine of it. And the great story was from his first home game. He came to Benwell and we were playing in the youth team against actually Sunderland. And uh, we beat Sunderland, I think, 7-1 on the day, on the morning. And uh, he went he went to take the first team in the afternoon full of all these old these senior players. 
And I think we lost at St James's in the following week. We played Notts County. We in the first team. And nine of those 11 that played against Sunderland in the morning, the youth team, were in the 15 for the first team the following Saturday. And we we stayed in the team and he gave so many young players their debuts. The club was nowhere near where it was going to be financially in a couple of months' time. He, he was he was a terrific manager. He was a perfect manager to to develop the young players because he believed in us. He didn't pressurise us when results would go against us because we were naive. There was many games of evidence where we'd be three or, f- three or goals up or four goals up and we'd draw the game or lose the game because we didn't have the the knowledge or the, ex- um, or the experience to see the game out. We'll continue to get an extra goal and... You know, but he always encouraged with this to, to show what true potential. So, even though he didn't reap the rewards of the youngsters, obviously when Kevin came in, he seen the importance of five or six of us who ended up staying with him all the way through his tenure as manager and being part of the success. And when they did eventually uh, see us as service requirements, they sold us for substantial fees. With um, Ardiles, he brought in David Kelly as well, didn't he? He also obviously must have had an eye for a player because David Kelly was not so good for Sunderland, but he was all right for Newcastle, shall we say. He was very good for Newcastle and the story that goes with that is because they were so financially stricken before Sir John Hall's Magpie group took over. Um, Ozzy Ardiles actually paid for David Kelly out of his own money with an interest-free loan to, to Newcastle. So all they had to do was once Sir John Hall took over with the new finances, just give the money, give the quarter of a million pound back to Aussie. Now, how many managers would do that? Put their own money uh, on the table to to bring a player into the football club because he thought that David would be a, a good fit and he was. So, you know, that was a terrific signing by Aussie. Kevin Keegan came in and I think... I mean, I was very, very young and obviously I'm from the opposite side of... I'm, I'm from the Weir, so I remember it in a very different way. But... When Keegan came in, could you feel that the minute he walked in the door, it was going to be as special as it was for Newcastle? Absolutely. The aura was ridiculous when he walked in the room. Um, but I'd been there to witness when he came as a player yeah. in 82. I first went to watch Newcastle in 80, so I had two years of mediocrity at best. <laughs> and then Kevin came through the door as a player and the club just took off in every aspect the size of the crowds sold out every weekend in the home games the expectation the quality of player that wanted to come sign for the club even though it was first division championship now and it was just the joy them two years when he played for us were just ridiculous so special when he come back as a manager it was like that aura you are like you you didn't look at him as just a footballer or a football manager he was just this just this superstar, you know, and um, you had that, you had that aura of him, and, and he carried on right until his last day with every single player he signed. Um, everyone had unbelievable respect for him, um, and hung on every word he said, and that was one of his main assets. And he knew that he was a, he obviously had he, you know that asset was his quality of his signings. He always seemed to strengthen the, the team at the right time, make it better, improve the team. So the players that were already there, we had to improve again to try and be around because you knew if you didn't get to the level that was required, you'd, you'd be moved on. And so you know, I was there from his first day to his last of his first tenure, and it was. He said it. He said it would be a roller coaster ride, and it certainly was. And most of it was upwards. Talking about the signings that he brought in, there was one particular one that stuck out in my mind looking through the list of players he brought in. Yes, you had Beresford, Cole, Rob Lee, but for you personally, 
I'm looking at Bracewell. Paul Bracewell would have came in at that point, hugely experienced. You would still be sort of mid, well, early 20s. How good was Paul Bracewell? Because I remember him being superb when he was 34, 35. Well, I was still a, teen- I was still a teenager. I-, I was still a teenager, 19, t- pushing 20. Yeah. And Paul first came in and I became his midfield partner. And what Paul done for me, um, he, he's such an experienced player and he, he'd obviously come from that fantastic Everton team that he played for won the league and, and cup, winners us cup and you know become an international and was an exciting box-to-box player but he was such an intelligent player that when he came to his latter years he, he, he made himself more into a defensive midfield player so that allowed me as a young exuberant vibrant midfield player who liked to bomb on and join in with the attacks with Paul's knowledge and discipline, that allowed me to do that. And yeah. Paul would get Paul a bit like Bally later down the line at, at Sunland, done all the unseen dirty work that enabled me to 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 go and join in with the attacking players and, and have all the fun making and scoring goals. So their two jobs were massive. But Paul played a massive influence on me both on and off the pitch in terms of how we went about things. Uh, his discipline, his professionalism, how we trained, uh, how we prepared for matches. And as I said, a teammate in Newcastle played a massive part in his signing for Sunderland when he was Peter's assistant, Peter Reid's assistant. And then obviously I signed for him when he was manager for him. So played a huge part in my career. Newcastle, as it were, obviously went on to win the league at that point. I think it was 20th the season beforehand win the league the season afterwards made some great signings win the league obviously fantastic for you but then the most unbelievable thing probably looking back is how well you did in your first season in the Premier League you went from winning the league to finishing third it's something you just don't really see these days at any point how did you manage to not just adapt to the league so quickly but almost push for a second title immediately well I'll tell you what was the best thing that could happen to we we got brought down the bang the first game of the season the new season at home to Tottenham Everyone was, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. The, the place was on a high. we just got Tottenham Hotspur, one of the big names in the Premier League at home. First game, sun was shining. The, 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 the schooled us. They'd done a, they'd done a, a top-class, top-flight job on us. Beat us 1-0. I think Sheringham scored the goal. Uh, we went to Coventry, uh, who weren't... You know, were probably mid-table, and that's not being disrespectful because they, you know they've been in the Premier League a while, yes. and they beat us as well. And those two games was basically a, the wake-up call because on the following Saturday we're going to Old Trafford, <laughs> the last place you want to, the last place where you want to go when you've lost your first two games in the Premier League. But we went there and we played exceptionally well. We drew one-one which was more than we just, you know, uh, at least we deserved, sorry. And that gave us the confidence. Then after that, we went on a run. and we, So we had the little kick up the bum we needed because I think we maybe thought it was going to be a little bit, we're starting to believe a little bit of the hype that was getting taught about with. Yeah. And those two first games brought me back down, crashing to earth and we responded. I think we showed what, what mentality was. Um, as it was... Sky Sports came into play. The Premier League was in like full swing by that point. I think Newcastle basically gradually turned into the, the team that people wanted to watch on Sky Sports if they were neutral because of the way they played. And I think if you're a neutral, you like seeing it, you know, attacking players. It was as much as it kills me to say that. I've got to be honest. Um, but the likes of like Janola, Shearer, Ferdinand, uh, all those players in the team, you went 12 points clear at Christmas. In truth, did you think you were going to win the league at that point? 
We're actually 12 points clear in end of January, early Feb as well. And I've got to say, we never ever had the conversations with each other that we were going to do, win the league and do this and do that. We just, it's a horrible old cliche. It was just look forward to the next game. And we, we didn't get, uh, we, we got to the nitty gritty part of the season. We didn't have the experience that Man United had. I think we only had three, four players who, who, who'd been there and won it. Yeah. Peter Biazzi, Barry Fennison, was he still around, Barry? I mean, Alan wasn't there at the time when we were 12 pounds clear. He came the following summer, so when he, and he'd obviously won it with Blackburn. But yeah, we, when you were in the position we were in, it was, uh, it was a difficult one, really. Does it give you like that level of experience that you want where you think, right, let's not let that happen again. If I get in that position, it's not going to happen again. Absolutely. And then that, that summer, after you've, uh, you haven't won the league, you go and smash the world transfer record to get the best striker in the world. You think, well, yeah, listen, this is going to be it. We missed out last year. We learned from our experience as individuals. Like I said earlier, the manager, Kevin Keegan, went out and just improved the squad once again. And as he said, we were on our Far East tour before Alan met up with us. We were in Bangkok and Alan met with in the Singapore leg of the tour. He said, if you didn't already realise that you were playing for one of the biggest clubs in Europe the most ambitious clubs in Europe you need to now because we've just smashed the, tra- the world transfer record for uh, one of the most uh, highly sought after strikers in the bit in the bit in the world so but we knew you know and you know for me I, as I said earlier about the Wolves End Boys Club situation Alan was a couple of years older meaning was there so I'd, I'd known Alan uh, many years and knew about him and obviously seen what he'd been doing at Southampton and Blackburn so when we got him, um, you know, we thought, well, you know, this 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 could be it. And um, unfortunately, it wasn't six months down the line. Kevin's quit. Kenny Dagley, Shalin's old boss has come in, who had a fantastic pedigree at Liverpool and Blackburn. Um, and, but we finished second again. You know, obviously, we've done that on the last day of the season with the results going our way and us getting a result. But that's the mentality of the club. We were disappointed. We'd finish second two years on the bounce and we were disappointed. Was, was Tino Espria there at that point? He, would, he signed just before Shearer, didn't he? T, Tino signed um, just in the January of the season before, yeah, when we were 12 points clear, yeah. was Tino, yeah. How, because how, I can see, obviously people won't be able to see this because we'll be putting it on audio, but I've seen like a smile rise to your face as soon as I mentioned his name. What was he like? Brilliant. Great character, lovable rogue, fantastic footballer and his day unplayable. Just an absolute, bought into the club straight away, still talks fondly about I mean, one story I've got about him, I've told it numerous times, but he came back from international duty and he was lying on the treatment table face down and I walked in and I was messing about with him and he had a big like sort of gash across the back of his calf. And I said to him, Tino, bad tackle in the game. He says, no, Nash. My nickname was Nash. He said, no, Nash. He says, bullet wound. I says, bullet wound. He says, yes, back in Colombia. He says, skimmed across the back of my calf. And I said to him, like, in, in all seriousness, hey, Tino, you need to calm down, you know, with all this bad behaviour, you'll get kicked off the national team. And his response was, Nashki, me and Pablo Escobar picked the national team. <laughs> <laughs> the stories you hear about him, even from like a even from a red and white perspective, some of the stories you heard were like I think it was a Darling that tried to sign him. Is that right? It was a Darling. Yeah, yeah. It was one of the famous George Reynolds incidents. That 
12 point drop that you had, there was a period where everyone remembers it and it's, it's a Keegan outburst, you know, it's coming, but what's funny about that, what a lot of people don't realize. And if you watch the full thing back, Richard Keyes is literally dropping bombs and you can see like the twitch in Kevin Keegan's eye, like he's getting a bit cheesed off. Most people just play him getting angry. But if you watch Richard Keyes, he drops those like little bombs just to rile him up. Did he say anything after he came in? Did he like say, oh, lads, I've just, I've just gone off on the telly. Or was it just to like, you just come in and no, say, what happened was because it was after we'd be, well, after we'd beat Leeds at Ellen Road. Uh, That's right. On yeah. nil on the Tuesday night. And we're traveling straight to Nottingham because our game in hand was Nottingham Forest on the Thursday. And the situation, what had riled Kevin was, <clears throat> we were playing Forest on the Thursday, then us and Man United had our lost games of the season on the Sunday. And if we had went to Forest and won, we would have been in the driving seat. And Alex Ferguson, before we played Leeds, had come out and said, well, Leeds is, we need Leeds to get a result, but it's all in Newcastle's favour because Leeds, Man United's big rival, in Forest, after the season finished, we were going back to the city ground to blame Stuart Pierce's testimonial. Because yeah. at that time, lads with testimonials, they wanted full houses, they wanted Newcastle United because they knew the fans would travel. Yeah. So we, after the season finished, we were going back to the city ground for Pierce's testimonial. And that's what Ferguson had played on in the media before the Leeds game. He said, well, they'll beat Leeds because Leeds won't want to see Man United win the t- league. They'll want Newcastle. And they'll beat Forest because Forest won't try because they're going back next the week after that to, to look after Stuart Pierce and his testimonial. And I think that's what it riled Kevin. So when Kevin got into the nitty gritty, but when he so when he got on the bus for us to travel from Ellen Road down to Nottingham, he just made a big joke of it. He said to Terry McDermott, his assistant, and to the lads, you need to watch Sky for the interview. It's, it's absolutely <laughs> mental. <laughs> so I think the press made more of it in terms of the main games than what Kevin was thinking. I think Kevin, he was what he was. He 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 was hot on his sleeve, but uh, he um, it, it it was just him his normal reaction. So obviously, the, moving on to the red and white time of your career, um, I've got to be honest. Now, ask a straightforward question. I'm only thinking from my perspective. Could I ever play for Newcastle? I don't know. I don't know. Depends how much it pays, but your first club after Newcastle, could you have ever imagined it would have been Sunderland? No. And, and, and when I decided that my time was up at Newcastle, which I did, I wasn't being forced out the door. In fact, the opposite, they were offering us a new contract. Yeah. What I couldn't promise is what I wanted was to be playing week in, week out, and that's all I wanted to do. So I got the permission when the clubs, six or seven clubs, uh, put, uh, put a fee in that was accepted that I could go and speak to them in Sunderland was the last club I met. But the, this was in the summer and the previous January, Peter Reid and Paul Bracewell had wanted me to try and try and sign me in the January as they were fighting relegation from the Premier League to try and keep them up. And I just didn't want to move at that time. I wanted to stay at Newcastle and, and see where we could finish. And so that was a non-starter from my point of view. We waited till the summer. Obviously, Sunderland got relegated. But I knew there was a a new challenge there because they were leaving Roper Park and going to the stadium late. And then I met Peter, the last out with all the managers and um, said to him, in, as I approached, the, we met in a, in a wine bar in Manchester <laughs> and I said to him, <laughs> I said to him that, listen, I've come out of courtesy, there's no chance I'll be signing for you. 
three or four bottles of champagne later have <laughs> signed a five-year contract so <laughs> i think that's really isn't it that's but really isn't it? i had I, I, I played two years i loved the manager i loved his staff paul bracewell bobby saxon uh, ricky sabrasia pot robson different class all the coaches this, the, the the camaraderie between the staff and the players, the players he brought in, uh, the lads that were already there. You know, I walked into a dressing room where there was Stone Shred and White and Kevin Ball and Mickey Gray. And I think that, that was, I didn't just have to win the fans over, I had to win them lads over. And uh, yeah. I hit the ground running. And I had, as I said, you know, uh, the first game at the stadium light when we opened it against Ajax and then the first league game against Man City. I think me, Kev Phillips and Quinny scored yeah. on a Friday night. I knew I'd made the right decision. I, I, I had a, a young son, I had a young family. Um, I didn't want to leave, particularly want to leave the North East. You know, uh, as I said, the football side of it, two years in a brilliant team, played great football, really enjoyable. And, you know, I've my two worst days in football were uh, losing a playoff final as a, as a player against Charlton and losing a playoff final as a manager. They were they go down as my two worst days. So for me to say that is a black and white and a Newcastle fan to say one of my worst days in football was losing a playoff final with Sunderland shows you that once I decided was committed to be the player, my heart was in it and I was there. I was there for the, you know, for the ups and downs, and I didn't enjoy the odd time we did lose a game. So that second season when we won the championship uh, was a fantastic season. But I just knew me heart of hearts. This was me being honest again. One of the big things I had in my career in terms of I give everything every game, no matter if I was playing well, playing okay, playing poorly. At least no fan could ever criticise us for not giving me best and. I just had this feeling that could I approach a, a time where Derby where I was playing for Sunderland against Newcastle in the same way. My thought straight away was no, probably I couldn't and I didn't want to take that. I never, ever wanted to be accused of that and that was the reason. Obviously, the way it ended was not the way I wanted it to. Um, I only played for three clubs. I'm welcome back with open arms to two of them and the other one where I had two fantastic seasons I don't know. It could be a good welcome that I could get there. It could be still people, and rightly so, who hold a grudge. I don't judge them for that. I let them down. Um, you, you know, the, the saying in, in, in anything is you don't bite the hand that feeds you, and I did that. And uh, that, that's the bit, you know, getting more mature and becoming a manager and you're right further down the line. Um that's the thing that disappoints us. I would love to, I would love to go back there, you know, and watch games. You just don't know the reaction, and that's only my fault. So that's a disappointing thing. Do you know when you first moved? You mentioned before about Mickey Gray. You're talking about winning them over and stuff like that. Surely Mickey Gray and a few of the red and whites that were in that dressing room must have tried to like prod the bear a little bit when you first went in, just to see what you were about a little bit. Did Mickey Gray ever drop any like little little digs when you first came over? I think they probably did. I think the test it is, they probably would have. And I think I think Bawley, who, you know, wasn't wasn't a local, but you know, had been at the club that long and 
and uh, became a stalwart and, 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 and so highly thought of there, and rightly so. I think he was the one that was looking at all aspects of what I was about. Because I didn't, I think he was looking to see if I'd just made the move for financial reasons. Yeah. Because obviously I'd become that record signing and what comes with that is the, the salary and all that. So, and I had to prove that it wasn't just about that. It was about me, you know, staying in the area. But, I, I, you know, I had standards and I didn't want to let anyone down. And uh, thankfully I didn't. The two years I had on the pitch were, were fantastic. And uh, two of my closest friends at, at the club become Kevin Ball and, and Mickey Gray. But I, I had many of them. Because we had a great, we had a great spirit which showed on the pitch. You know the likes of Alex Ray, and um, Kev Phillips, Michael Bridges, Niall Quinn, Nicky Summerby. I mean, Alan Johnson was a quiet lad, but he still mixed in. Chrissy Makin, um, you know, Andy Melville, a couple of young centre halves as well at the time. Um, you know, Richard Ordy was staunch red and white as well. So there was people like that in the dressing room that. Went into and and you've got to you've got to win over. So that's that's what I, you know, wanted to do straight away. And thankfully it happened. Talking about Bolly and that obviously I know Bolly. Um, Bolly is still really good friends with you. In my I can't remember the game, but I'm sure it was Leicester in the semi final of the. Now yeah. I remember there was like an argument on the pitch. Now don't get me wrong, everyone has arguments on the pitch. That's just the way it is. That's just the way football is. If you're a winner, but what was the, the what it made me think of is obviously you're close with Bawley and you still are now. But what was Bawley like when he got angry? Like how scary is Bawley when he's angry? Oh, very. You know, so things yeah is like I said earlier about those lads I grew up with in Newcastle. It's great that you're the best of mates. But if you're, if you're that good of mates and you think that highly of each other, when it comes to winning a football match, if you feel someone's not doing it, you've got to give them a bit of a telling off. And I think Bawley was a little bit disappointed to what he thought I was contributing to, to our partnership. And, and he was. He was right. And we had a little bit of a set to. But, you know, at that instance, Kev was right. Because all Kev used to say to himself <clears throat> was... What was great about Kevin was he, he he didn't try and be something he wasn't. He knew what he was. He would he would be aggressive both in the air and on the ground with the opposition. He would he would win much out of his tackles. And he just used to say to me, "When I win the ball, make sure you're rounded so I can give it to some. I give it to you, and you can get a soft playing. And that's what makes a team. It's it's a jigsaw puzzle. It's you know no good me and Kev being the same type of player playing alongside each other. Um, and and I respected him for what he'd done, and, and he respected me for. So we, we ended up becoming the perfect partnership because we we done different things to each other, uh, to the contribution of the team, and uh, we become such good mates that when he signed for Fulham, we we lived together for for six months. So not things like that, uh, you know. I always expected, and one of the funny stories, me, one of my first um, insights into what Kevin was about, he was a motivational captain in the Ajax game where we were opening the stadium, but were basically testing it to make sure everything was right. Yeah. And there was lots of uh, things going on, security tests, fire tests, and making sure all the areas were fit for purpose. And as the buzzer went to go out on the pitch, Kev's synonymous for 
being a mo- giving a motivational speech to the lads before we go out. And uh, it was while he was whole, it, he used to have a hold of the door, the dressing room door. So uh, he started banging this dressing room door backwards and forwards while shouting back at us all to get us motivated. And obviously the stadium was brand new, and the the door just came off in his hand. <laughs> and I'm thinking, <clears throat> and I'm thinking, wow. Uh, this is this is my new cut, and better I better get this sorted before uh, you know he starts throwing me around like he is that door. <laughs> With some absolute nutcases like Alex Ray and, and Borley on the pitch, like how much did you know you had like your partner next to you? How much like confidence would that give you knowing you got someone like Alex Ray or Kevin Ball who run through brick walls for your teammates? They give us massive freedom. The two of them, as I said to you, the we. We contributed to each other, but they they had done a lot of the unseen work that sometimes only your teammates appreciate, and they'd done it massively for me. So I had to contribute on the other side, because if I wasn't doing that, all their doggy work and unseen work was going to waste. And between the three, with whichever one was left out, or or if we played together. We had each other's back. We had a great relationship. There was a there was a great togetherness. We played how we trained. We, sorry, we trained how we played, and it, it meant it, it was a competitive week leading up to the games. And it must have been difficult for the manager and his staff to choose. You know, I mean, and it was the same with the striking positions. You know, you talk about one of the the best up and come young strikers in the business at the time. Michael Bridges couldn't get in the team because of Kevin and Niall. Um, went on to have a brilliant career, Bridgie. So it was like, um, no, I, I, I think there was the utmost respect between me, Alex and Kevin, because we knew what each other gave to each other and we knew that uh, we'd have each other's backs in different ways um, and, and, and that would, would help each other um, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the pitch and, and to, to contribute. That's what we've done. We, we made sure that we, we made the connection. So whichever pair was picked, we, we'd done the job. When you joined, as you mentioned before, you were you're obviously the, the key signing at that point, or the headline signing, because you were the record signing as well. But another, another little five foot seven lad joined with you at the time, little known guy called Kevin Phillips. Um, I think the fans' reaction, if I remember rightly, I remember my dad's reaction was, who's that? I thought he's at Watford. I don't know what he's like, but you got to see him on the training pitch before we got to see him on the pitch itself. Could you tell straight away with Kevin Phillips that he was going to be that good? Could you just see he just had it? Absolutely. He had um, he had everything what I'd seen from the previous top strikers I'd played with. He had all those attributes. He had an arrogance of a goal scorer. He had a terrific first touch and he had an unbelievable leap for a little guy, as you said. Uh, you know, we both had short hair, similar to what I've got now. We both the same sort of height, but he used to just score thirty more goals than me a season. So that was the difference. <laughs> you got your most amount of goals, I think, didn't you, in the first season of Sunderland? Did you get? Did we have like yeah. four players on double? I think you had thirteen. Uh, Johnson had eleven. Quinny had about fifteen to twenty, and Phillips had what thirty-five? Thirty-five? Yeah, I think I think I might even add more than thirteen. I mean, I. Re- I think I could even possibly got myself into 20 that season, but yeah. unbeknown to a lot of people, I played the last four months of the season with a double hernia problem. I used to have to get it treated and, you know, um, 
I got as soon as the, about three or four days after the playoff final against Charlton, I went in for surgery. And um, if you remember, uh, I didn't do a lot of the following pre-season because I was still recovering. And then my first game back was the last pre-season game with Tartlepool on the Friday night. I played in that. And then we had QPR at home um, in the first game. And I broke my leg after 30 minutes and both, both, Bowley was trying to pull my boot off, I remember. And I think he probably <laughs> made the break worse. <laughs> I, I remember when that happened, actually, against uh, QPR. And I think at that point, you were... You were seen as absolutely pivotal to the team. But you came back really fast, didn't you, from a broken leg? What was it, two and a half months? I came back, I so the see, that would have been August. I don't know what part of August the first game of the season was in that season. But I was back um, October. But I never really got back to firing for another four, four or five weeks. I remember I started brightly in my first couple of games. I was probably playing on adrenaline. Yeah. And then we played Stockport at home and I had a really average game and I had a little spell for about two or three weeks where the adrenaline was weaning off and the, my lack of match fitness. Because I think I only had one reserve game um, before I came back. And then then obviously after the three or four games, just got myself back in the run and then we went on it and, and were just on fire for the rest of the season. Because I think you came back at the same time as Alex, obviously. I think Alex went out of the game for six to seven weeks because of... Yeah, I think it was drinking issues at the time. I think it was it was classed as, and I think you were just coming back as he'd gone out. So it would have been you and Borley at that point. I don't know how much you recall of it, but when something like what happened with Alex happens, obviously that can be quite difficult for a person. How good do you think it would have been for, or how good was the team in rallying around him at that point? Fantastic. I remember the day he was coming back, we got the news that he was coming back into the training ground and, because we loved him and we didn't know how to react, what was the right thing to say. Um, and it was Bobby, Sa- Bobby Saxon who broke the ice and filled <laughs> his locker up with lager. And uh, <laughs> uh, what was it? Um, brandy truff, brandy trifle, and stuff like that. And um, he broke the ice a little bit by doing that. And it just, the whole dressing room went up and laughed at us. So I think that helped the, the mood because everyone was like, well, what do you say? You know, how do you approach it? Never really been in that situation. And, you know, it's great. I see him now and he's he's still uh, he, he, he's still still sober. So yeah. it, it it shows, you know, I mean he was he was a he was he was he was a better player. I knew he was a good player, but when I got to play alongside him, he became a better player than what I'd realised as well. And he was a funny guy. He was a very funny guy. I loved his, I loved his humour, um, and I loved his character. So it was good when he came back from obviously that that personal issue that he had. I think Alex Ray might be the funniest man that I've ever had the pleasure to meet. Um, <laughs> Honestly, I feel like I feel like a fanboy every time I meet him because. It's everything that comes out of his mouth, I'm just rolling on the floor with. He's just got a fantastic way of telling a story, hasn't he? I absolutely, absolutely brilliant. And, uh, you know, as I said, that's why you, it was important. We were like a family. We, we cared for one another. And when something like that happened to him, as I said, we, we felt it and we didn't really know how to approach it when he was coming back. Um, do you just do it with a bit of humour or do you do it with a bit of humility? Maybe it's a few tears, but, you know, as I said, Sacco broke the ice, so that allowed us all to have a laugh over it. 
I think Peter Reid rightly gets lauded for how good his management was when he was at Sunderland. But Bobby Saxon, the more you speak to people and the more stories you hear, you realize how big of a part he was. But Sacco was a brilliant character and still is. What are your memories of um, Bobby Saxon? Because obviously, yeah, I think you were with him at Newcastle for a really short time as well, because he was caretaker manager there, wasn't he, for like a couple of games? Well, I was, I was going to, I was going to say to you that he probably played a pivotal part as well as Brace and me going to Sunderland, because um, he was the assistant manager at the Jim Smith when he when I got my debut, and he used to always come to the reserve games that I was playing in and would praise us um, and, and and speak highly of us. So when I got there. Um, and, and Bobby was the assistant to Peter with Brace. I knew I had two two people who had worked with us before were on my side. That gives you a lot of confidence. But Bobby was very straight and to the point. Um, didn't beat around the bush. He worked extremely hard through the week on tactics against the opposition and how we're going to deal with things. Not in terms of how we were going to play because it was very similar to my time in Newcastle. Peter and Bobby both believed that we had quality players that in terms of our what we'd done with the ball, we went and played our natural game, but without the ball, you know, the tactics to to combat the opposition. And um, Bobby worked extremely hard on and he, he took a lot of pride on that. So uh, um, you know, as I said to you about the playoff final, um I felt down that day. I've never seen a man involved in a football match as down as Bobby Saxon after that game. Um, and if you know that I've seen that funny footage of him on the touchline when he's doing the looks like he's doing the Highland jig at times when <laughs> he's kicking every he's kicking every ball. But that was Bobby. He loved the game. Still does now. Bump into him at you know different sporting events, and it's fantastic to see him. Um, load of respect for the man, and uh, you know he was as you said, um, and, and Peter knew that as well. Peter realised how important Bobby was there uh, for him. There's a particular game that I remember, and we've talked about the playoff final, which was a phenomenal game for so many different reasons. I was 11, um, and even I remember the emotion that I felt as an 11-year-old. God knows what it must have been like being on the pitch, but simultaneously, I also remember the game, but just before that, the playoff semi-final against uh, Sheffield United, which is, in my opinion, probably the best atmosphere that the stadium lights ever seen. I don't think it's ever been beaten. Uh, What are your memories of that night? Just electric. The fans, you talk about fans driving you to a result. When we stepped out on that pitch a couple of minutes before kickoff, it's easy to see it now because we won it. I knew we were going to win because the, the atmosphere, the noise that was driving one, there was no way we were not going to get the result that night because we just come out the traps like flying. Um, the manager had instilled us in it. He was like, you know, we're done well in the first leg. We're disappointed with the result, not with the performance, but we can deliver again. And uh, that's what we did. And um, now that, that that noise that night was another example that if I had, once I decided to leave Newcastle, I'd made the right choice and where I was going. You know, after that particular season, after the, the playoff season, I mean, after Wembley and the 4 forward Charlton and obviously the penalties, even though, and I think everyone knew it, and I think everyone knows it now that you, you are staunch Newcastle and everyone knew that at the time. Um, no one ever doubted your commitment on the pitch and I don't think anyone does now, but in a sense, you moved because you thought it was the right move for your career. But after a season like that and a game like that, do you start to feel like emotion for the fans and, and the club rather than just being the club that you play for? Did you start feeling like something for someone? I did. Of course I did. I felt for the fans. I felt for everybody connected with the club that day when we walked around Wembley. 
when we left Wembley afterwards as well. The four or five days afterwards uh, were horrific. Um, and it wasn't, you know, I never want to experience and unfortunately I did as a manager, which is probably even worse. But um, it's, of course, I, you know, they'd come to, I'd won them over. They were supporting me week in, week out through thick and thin. So, yeah, every time I step out onto a pitch, I always think it's important that you have an affinity with the fans and you're sure that you're, you're giving your best for them. And that's that, that was the relationship I had. And uh, that's why I say I'm disappointed because of what happened uh, at the end, because of that relationship would never be the same again. What did you make of all like the merchandise? I remember the like Cloggies and Mackham and stuff like that. You must have got a bit of stick from your mates from that. Um, you know what? I can't even all that type of stuff. I didn't really get a lot to know about. I wish I had it. I could have got a percentage of it now. <laughs> <laughs> I've got I've got one somewhere, but I had to get rid of it after your bloody t-shirt incident. <laughs> wasted thirteen ninety nine there. That would have been that would have been on the next bonfire. That <laughs> I'm saying nothing, mate. Obviously, but you always thirteen ninety nine just to let you know. I think <laughs> when it comes to sort of the, the career that you had at Sunderland, I think you, you're right in what you're saying. It was a really successful two years. And yes, it ended in, in the way that it did. But, and this is a really hypothetical question, I suppose, but say that the T-shirt incident hadn't happened and say that even though you thought, I don't think I can play St. James's for Sunderland, and you were forced to stay because we know what really could have been like. I think everyone's heard about that. And you were forced to stay at Sunderland. How do you think the future would have panned out for you in Sunderland if you'd stayed? I would have been part of the success that continued to have under a brilliant manager. And, you know, who, who knows what would have happened three, four years down the line. It's hard to say. I think if the T-shirt incident hadn't happened, I would have definitely stayed because I was adamant that I wasn't moving. I'd actually asked, um, I'd had a conversation with him before the T-shirt incident about the situation, what I've said about, you know, playing Newcastle and not being right. And he said, no, you, you're going to be part of what what I want to do here. And uh, so, yeah, I, I believe, um, I can't say that me being there would improve because the two finishing seventh and two successive seasons were terrific. And um, so, and then you get the old adage after that. Sometimes you don't realise what you've got till it's gone. And the incident when Peter got moved on because I hadn't started the third season as as well as things had gone. But yeah, I think I believe I would have been would have been a part of that, that successful period. But I, I don't think I think I think I think if I had it went down the line, and I think this is where it would have been different. If that incident with Peter had, if I had stayed hypothetically in, in that third season in the Premier League, Peter got removed. I think I would have been looking certainly to move on then because he was the mainstay and the main reason for most of us being there because we loved playing for him. I don't think, and this is just a personal opinion, I don't think it's healthy to have any level of regrets. And I think a lot of footballers don't because your career is your career and you had a good one. But do you know when we were like seventh off top and we were beating Chelsea 4-1 at half time or 4-0 at half time and you've seen how well we did. And I don't mean the regret as in, do you regret wearing the t-shirt? Because that's been covered a million times over. But 
did he ever regret not just like thinking, oh, yeah, you know what? I wish I was part of that. I wish I was part of that team that's hammering Chelsea 4-1 and stuff like that. I, ne- I, never, I never had those feelings because my next venture proved to be fantastic venture for us as well at Fulham. Absolutely. I ended up, I ended up capping the club, you know, in, into its highest ever position in the Premier League and they were first time competing in Europe. Um, so, you know, that's, that helped. If I had went to a club that hadn't become successful, maybe no doubt there were, no doubt there would have been lots of regrets that I wanted to be a part of what was going on back at Sunderland. But because we were having our own success at Fulham, you know that never came into my mind. I've got one more question for you, and it's one that's nagged me for years and years and years and years. And it's probably easier than you think. I normally give me me guests a bit of a tougher question to finish, right? But where the hell did the nickname Nash come from? Uh, that was from Terry McDermott when he became the assistant manager. And we had one of the first games, him and Kevin were in charge. And we're training in our Nash in Geordie dialect means you need to get somewhere quickly. And uh, I said to Terry, Terry, I need to Nash home, but I'll be back in time for the coach leaving. And he was basically saying, Nash, what does that mean? And it just stuck ever since. Uh, a lot of people think it's from the old, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Nash the dog, Nasha the yeah, dog. Yeah, Nasha, yeah, that's uh, what I thought. Uh, yeah. But uh, no, no, that wasn't. I mean, hopefully that's the only uh, um, <laughs> nickname I had. I can imagine there was a few more, but uh, we'll keep it at Nash. We'll keep Nash is fine. Nash is good. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, it feels weird calling you Lee because I've always known you as Clarky. So I'll, I'll, I'll say Clarky, right? But Clarky, thanks very much, mate. Uh, really appreciate thanks, the Tim. chat. You, you tested my resilience, having to speak about Newcastle, but um, I hope you enjoyed it just as much, mate. Thanks very much. All the best. Stay All safe. All the best, mate. Stay safe, chap. All right. Bye. Thanks, bye, mate. Bye bye. bye.